You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply welcome to altair four gentlemen I am to transport you to the residence. Uh, this is uh, no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Obtained by reliable computer technology and people by lifelike robot men and women. Desire ends in satisfaction, and all in a controlled environment. And I'm responding. Should we cut the main power grid, sir? It'll kill the light. Shut it all down. Shut it all down. Shut down. Shut down immediately. We have no control over the robots at all. A 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. Today we're going to be talking about robots as monsters. It's a really fun interview with author Daniel H. Wilson, who has certainly got the right credentials for this discussion. One of my favorite bits in the film World's End, the third film in Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy, the protagonists are discussing the implications of their unusual situation, and I don't, I don't want to spoil it. I think this is a film that's better enjoyed from a position of total ignorance. Anyway, they keep running into this recurring discussion of the origin of the word robot. It's a Czech word that means slave or serf. And of course, fiction's tales of robot slaves who become aware of their situation and rise up to destroy the masters are everywhere. Movies like The Terminator, The Matrix, Chopping Mall, Westworld, and even going back to silent films like Metropolis all show that the machine servant can be used for good or ill and may cause serious harm when things don't go as expected. Robots in real life don't behave like the ones in most books and movies. But the fact is that the waiting period before we get robots that can kill people has already expired. Should you be afraid of intelligent robots? Will we be enslaved by artificial intelligence? Will I ever get a clever robot companion that can fight like a ninja and yet cook like my grandma? These are all important questions, except possibly for that last one. But let's grab an expert and have some monster talk. 
Today, we welcome Daniel H. Wilson, who is a New York Times bestselling author, a contributor to Popular Mechanics magazine. He has a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon and a master's degree in robotics and machine learning. He's published over a dozen scientific papers, holds four patents, has written eight books, including Robopocalypse, which we'll be talking about today, and How to Survive a Robot Uprising. He's written for Popular Science, Wired, Discovered, as well as online venues such as MSNBC and Gizmodo. He's hosted a TV series for the History Channel. So welcome to Monster Talk, Daniel H. Wilson. Why haven't you done anything with your life? <laughs> I've spent the last couple of years just writing that bio. <laughs> <laughs> that <one. laughs> Excellent. Oh, very yeah, impressive. <laughs> so, so, okay, so we'll start off with the basics. So just assuming that our, our listeners uh, don't know anything about robotics, what is a robot? Uh, well, a robot is a mechanical artifact that can sense the environment, think about what to do, and then act in the environment. Uh, that's the, that's my go-to definition that I use. Gotcha. Can I ask, what was the first robot? Robots are pretty tough to define, honestly. Like, you know, like the sense-think-act paradigm also describes a fire alarm, right? <laughs> it sits there sensing the world via, you know, the little wax tips on the end of the sprinkler system. And then whenever it senses fire, it thinks about what to do and it sounds an alarm. So, you know, you can get arbitrary about it. But some of the earliest, you know, ideas of robots are, you know, Greek. There's Talos, the big bronze guardian of Crete. There's uh, golems from Jewish folklore, which are kind of like robots. Um, and in the real world, you have a uh, Court automatons, which I'm really fascinated by. There was this guy, Valkinson, who built uh, all of these crazy mechanical ducks and things for emperors and kings. And, and you know, I mean, that, that stuff is super old school. Um, and, and it's really interesting to think about the robots that they had in antiquity. By the way, you, you opened Pandora's box here. You asked me a question about robots. The first, the first robot that people widely consider to be like an actual, you know, useful robot is probably Unimate. Um, in the late 50s, and that's the first robot arm that eventually was used to build cars in Japan, <laughs> not in the United States. We were too afraid of, of robots at the time. <laughs> so so uh, then you have like the uh, the Mechanical Turk, which would be what, a faux bot? What? Yeah, that's like, <laughs> like the court automaton, but yeah, that had a person inside of it. A whole series. Spoilers! What? <laughs> There's actually a really amazing book. Uh, I'm in my office right now, kind of Unfortunately, my books are organized by the color, so I'm not going to be able to find that, that book. No, I, I know. The, I bet I know the book you're talking about, but there is a, a it, maybe it's called like the Turk or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that is a great story. Um, so, what's your personal like? Just it doesn't have to be real, but what's your personal favorite robot? Uh, right now, what I the robot I've been thinking a lot about because of a project I'm working on uh, is is these various incarnations of Big Dog that were at that company, Boston Dynamics, before it got bought by uh, Google. Oh, yeah. We're going to ask you about that. Yep. Sure. And, and then, of course, they have the Cheetah. And then MIT also has a, a new Cheetah. And so, I mean, there's a lot of work with uh, quadrupeds going on that's really dynamic, like locomotion, right? Not the stilted sort of way that you imagine robots walk. Um, and yeah, it's really inspiring because they move like animals, right? And yeah. so it really gets your mind, uh, it really, anyway, it gets me thinking. Um, and I've been working on some projects that involve those types of characters. It's been really fun. Karen, what's yours? Oh. Um, I think Asimo. The, the one from the, South Park or the one from the, like, <laughs> the Honda robot? Okay, okay. <laughs> Mine is uh, Floyd from Infocom's game Planetfall. <laughs> Just uh, that's a that's an oldie. These but, are the these are the hard questions. Yeah, for the literally dozens of people who know what I'm talking about, it's a great <laughs> robot. What, <laughs> I know that one, and if I don't know it, you're in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't that's exist then. Well, since you've raised Big Dog, what can you tell us about Big Dog? Um, just in terms of what, uh, you know, what I'm interested in about it or oh, well, it I guess what it is and, uh, whether the military plan to use big dog and, and for what purposes. Yeah. We should probably describe it for our listeners since it's kind of like radio. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so big dog is a, a mule sized quadruped robot that runs on, like, I think a diesel engine It's very loud and, and, uh, and annoying sounding actually. Uh, and it was de developed by Boston Dynamics and, um, basically on a, 
I think a DARPA grant. Um, so Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency paid them to create this as a squad support uh, platform. So what it's going to, what it's designed to do originally was follow soldiers around in the field and carry all their heavy backpacks over rough terrain. And it's, you know, not a novel thing. Uh, pack mules have been following around soldiers carrying their supplies since people, you know, have been killing each other, which is forever. So uh, it's really common to have animals out in the field with soldiers. And so now they're just looking for ways to replace the animals with, with machines. And it's kind of like the last frontier um, of vehicles in the army is, uh, you know, replacing these things. So as you mentioned, it is pretty noisy. Would that be a very good thing for the military to draw attention? The military has uh, constraints on how long it has to be in use and also how they're going to resupply it. So it has to use the same resources that like uh, all their other equipment is going to use. So if you are shipping thousands and thousands of gallons of diesel fuel to, to, for all the Jeeps and tanks, then it has to use the same fuel as all the other vehicles. So, yeah, that was the reason for that. But now it's at Google, so they've, they've cut it off from military funding, and it's no longer being used for that purpose. It's probably going to be used for, I don't know, to deliver packages or, or whatever Google wants to do with it. To deliver really aggressive ads. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good idea. Yeah, I'd love to see a future yeah. where we have streets and everyone's riding mechanical animals. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Cool. Yeah, uh, it, I love Big Dog because it reminds me of a, a video game I used to play in the 80s called Mule. Uh, which is this great economics multiplayer game, but you you used a robot that was like a multi-purpose labor element, and then you would uh, assign it to different tasks. It doesn't really matter, except that if you want to go to planetmule.com, you can go play it today for free. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so what about things that have robotic components but might not be considered actual robots? What do you think about – are those robots or are those – and like what about cyborgs? Yeah, I mean, sure. That's all robotic. I mean, if you if you – for me, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of would you study it at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon? <laughs> you know, and yeah, of course. I mean, roboticists are the people, and that's a word, roboticist. Uh, they're the people that are building uh, all of these components, and sometimes they're prosthetic limbs, you know, that have some ability to sense the environment and do you know smart things that our limbs automatically do without us thinking about it. Um, and sometimes you're building a whole robot, but yeah. All those little components and also all of the AI, you know, the, and also the AI applications like speech recognition, gesture recognition, emotion recognition, all of that stuff, uh, that's all robotics as well. I mean, it's a huge field. You can really choose to study the body or you can study the mind, but, you know, all of it falls under the umbrella of robotics, in my mind anyway. For the purposes of the robot apocalypse, at least within your book, I think we had to have some kind of robot autonomy. And in the book, you link a kind of a artificial intelligence consciousness to it. Do robots have to have autonomy to become a monster? <laughs> uh, so, you know, this, this is an interesting point, like I think from writing fiction, right? Um, no, right? You could, you could have um, like an animal attack people and kill people and it's scary, but it's not terrifying, right? Because the animal is just... Uh, like amoral it's not making it a decision it's just being an animal or a person could get their hand caught in machinery right and it could be really gruesome but it's not terrifying because the machine isn't making a conscious decision to hurt the person it's just you know bad luck and it's the nature of the machine the nature of the animal so in order i think to really terrify a reader <laughs> you've got to have your villain um making a conscious decision to be evil and acting in a moral capacity so that it's not just an animal attack or malfunctioning machinery. This thing wants to hurt you. you know? Yeah. Well, you nailed it. I think you did a really good job. <laughs> the, the, ro the robots in your book are frigging chilling. So, um, yeah, so, you know, part of that is just my decision as a writer, you know, to try to make it as, as scary as possible. And so, you know, that's why I, you know, made sure that they were able to, to make that decision uh, just to amp up the stakes and the constant, you know, make it more scary. So aside from evil robots, uh, I think a lot of people are worried about the ethics of robots. Are they a good thing because they, they take jobs? Um, you have people with opinions like that. What do you think about the, the ethics of robots? Well, I mean, I think that 
you absolutely have to consider it. It's like two sides of a coin. You can't build robots without or any technology really without considering the ethical implications. And, and robots have a whole lot of ethical implications, mainly because they're autonomous. You know, so they're, they're acting on their own, which means when they make decisions, you have to make sure that, that they're actually making ethical decisions. You know, with most technology... It's not about what the technology does. It's about how people use it, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then kind of the onus is on the person using it. Right. You don't blame the hammer for being used in a crime. Right. Um, but but if your hammer could go walk across the street and decide to whack somebody upside the head, then you might then you might think more carefully about how you design your hammer, you know. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there's there's the. Just the outright, like, in the physical world, what does the machine do? Is it going to hurt people? And, you know, that's what I consider sort of the explicit kind of uh, ethical ramification. But there's also, I think, like, an, an sort of implicit uh, ramifications. And that is just how does it change society to interact with this machine on a daily basis, right? Especially when you start building machines that look exactly like people, or like exactly like animals, you know, how does that affect your moral development to have a slave that looks ex- and acts and talks and seems exactly like a human being, but isn't one, you mm-hmm. know, would it be ethical to even make that robot look perfectly human-like, um, you know, and how could you do that? And, and I mean, these questions go hand in hand with, with research and with development. I mean, this is something you have to consider as just another thing to figure out. In the current state of, of ethics, we tend to think of it as how can humans ethically implement robots? But what about the other way around where things like the uh, Asimov's laws of robotics, how would you, when we're still struggling with consciousness and uh, you know having independent AI, how, how do we even consider something like safe robot behavior laws built into the code? Yeah, so my feeling is that, uh, first of all, Asimov's three laws are just a a plot construct used to tell stories that have no bearing on, on actual development of robots. I mean, it's English. I mean, you're building a robot out of, out of like plastic and metal and, and code, you know, there's no easy way to put that into a robot. And, and it's just very easy to anthropomorphize robots because they have human like abilities. And so we assume that they need some sort of, you know, ethical, like like conscious ethical decision making the way we do it and and I don't think that's really true you know if you're going to make a robot that is you know behaves ethically then you know my feeling is that you approach it not from the top down like the way we would think of it like symbolically thinking about you know english sentences but from the bottom up you you design a robot from a consumer like from a consumer products standpoint where if you don't want it to hurt anybody then you make it incapable of physically hurting anybody. You try to design a robot that's safe the same way you try to design a blender that's safe. You know, if you stick your hand in the wrong end of a blender, you're going to lose your hand. Like we all in our kitchens have myriad ways to kill ourselves, right? <laughs> you get your hand stuck in the, you know, there's the microwave, the oven, the, the garbage disposal. We have dangerous technology all around us, but the way it's designed is it's designed to minimize the probability that we're going to get hurt, right? And we have to have that exact, I think, outlook whenever we're building robots that people are going to interact with in the home. Yes, it's possible that you can get hurt, uh, just like with any technology. But you do your best to make sure that it's, the robot's going to be incapable of causing harm uh, in the best-case scenario um, and just build it from the ground up to be as harmless as possible. You know, that's why you start noticing... If you look at the Google's new uh, self-driving cars, they're literally padded on the outside so that I guess so they would minimize damage if they bump into pedestrians. Um, I mean, that's good design. I would call that good design. They, they're nerfed. <laughs> so, yeah, you get smacked by one. You're like, whoa, well, I guess I, that's how it tells me to get out of the way in a friendly way. <laughs> So you've kind of touched upon this, but why is it that we tend to think of robots in our own image, but most robots, ones that are used for medical and industrial purposes, they don't look anything like us? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's just because we're narcissistic, right? And, and we can't help it. If you, if you look at the human brain, I mean, 
huge chunks of it are devoted to interacting with other human beings. I think it's why we're a successful species, right? We work together, we form civilization, uh, culture, we share each other's research. You know, this is why we're successful. We are always thinking about each other. We're always consuming a diet of, of human interaction. Always, always, always. We see faces in clouds and in tortilla shells. We cannot turn it off, right? And so when we see, you know, we form human, we see the world through these like human colored glasses, right? And all of our relationships with other people obviously are on a human level, but also objects and anything we interact with, we apply a human relationship to it. And so, you know, we have names for our cars and, and you know, our, there's a person at the car company whose job it is, is to design the face of a car because they know people are going to see the headlights like eyes and the grill as a mouth and they take advantage of it. And so, you know, should it come as any surprise that when, you know, we see something that actually behaves sort of like an animal or sort of like a person that our brains would run with it and apply uh, all that machinery that we have built for interacting with humans, um, apply it straight to the robots. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly what we're designed to do. It's, and, and so it's no surprise that we do it to the robots. And, and there's no way to turn it off. And so roboticists tend to try to just take advantage of it, you know, mm-hmm. and work with it, this sort of uh, tendency that we have to anthropomorphize everything, um, but especially human-like robots. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I, I'm not in the other sort of end of that, the the non-anthropic robots. There's uh, seem to be a lot that are based on insects. Is that my imagination or is that real? What? <laughs> yeah, you know. So there's a, I'm trying to remember. There's an area of study that used to be called biomimetics, and what's happened is most people see this area and they think, oh, they're copying. They're copying the animals. That makes sense. You know, um, you can think of an animal as the solution to a problem, right? And the problem is how do you survive in a particular environment? And so if you want to find a good answer for how do I build a robot that's going to like, you know, locomote in a jungle? Well, just go find all the animals that are designed to, you know, that are doing really well in the jungle. And they, they're obviously great solutions to the problem of how to get around the jungle. But what the field of study is really doing is it's more, I think they changed the name. People are trying to start call it bio-inspired now, bio-inspired robotics instead of biomimetics, which sort of implies that you're copying because they're not, you know, you can't build a robot out of the exact same materials that animals are built out of or that insects are built out of. Um, you know, you can't build them at the exact same scale with the exact same energy requirements. So what they're really doing is they're putting cockroaches on treadmills and they're like <laughs> sticking flies onto, uh, you know, gluing flies into little contraptions and changing the environment around them to see how they, how they bend their wings, you know, in order to figure out the principles underneath, you know, how these animals, insects and, and other animals locomote in their environments. And then they're taking the math. Essentially, they're just like, it's like dark crystal, you know, whenever they stick those little animals and they make them look at the, the gelflings and they look at the crystal, it's like they're sucking out the math, you know, like we just want the math of how you work, you know. And once they get the math, then they apply it to whatever materials they have or whatever scale they're operating at, you know, um, and then they, and they build robots out of, out of that. But, but the, the real trick is to distill a living organism down to the math, you know, the, the math of why it works and, and how it's able to operate in whatever environment it specializes in. Well, well, that's that's good engineering, though. It's not just copying; it's taking advantages of all of the uh, the millions and millions of trials that natural selection has gone through, right? So, yes, yeah, sound between it's like the difference between building a predator drone and like strapping wings under your arms and jumping off a bridge, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep thinking about um, robots in film and, and how there's this sort of disparity between uh, robots in fiction and uh, all the uh, the horrors and pleasures that they are able to provide the humans <laughs> versus the the reality of I can't make my robot even know whether it's day or night without the right sensors, you know. So I I, I just kind of wonder about that. Like, where do you think? Um, the near future of robotics is heading as far as uh, what are, what's trending in the real world versus fictional? 
Oh, self-driving cars, I think, for sure. And then, um, you know, we've already seen some stuff get mature, um, and no one seems to care. It's, it's interesting. Like, speech recognition, you know? When I was uh, in grad school, like, nine years ago, speech recognition didn't really – it existed, but it was really crummy. You know, you really couldn't trust it. You couldn't really use it in your applications. Now, anybody who's doing iPhone development, you know, can just plug in – the, the speech recognition toolkit and it recognizes men and women and children and adults in different accents. And like, it's amazing, you know, and that's, that's, that's robotics. I mean, that's, that's a machine learning application right there. And it's sort of matured and now we're just using it and just like, no one cares. <laughs> it's just totally mundane and normal. Um, so, you know, what I'm saying is as soon as these far-fetched crazy robotics things, you know, applications, as soon as they actually get here, then no one will care anymore. It will be totally normal and boring and we will ignore all of the robot dogs delivering mail or whatever. Isn't it, isn't it weird that, that both Google and Apple have speech recognition that's really pretty amazing in their phones, but hardly anybody uses it at the PC level, which is a much more robust machine? Yeah. You know, it's actually also weird how much Amazon and Apple and, and Facebook and Google are investing in robotics companies. I mean, it's like Google has bought Boston Dynamics and DeepMind and, and Nest and like they've just been buying tons and tons of robotics companies. Willow Garage is, is now a Google thing and, it's, and Amazon's been investing in these drones. I mean, these giant companies are really the ones that are going to be driving the, the robots that we see in our day-to-day lives, you know. Um, Facebook got Oculus Rift. You know, that's also interesting because um, they're the companies that they have the capital and the wherewithal, you know, to really like spin this stuff out and just decide, yeah, we're going to sell 20 million of these. Uh, yeah, but, mm-hmm. but, but do Larry Page and Sergey Brin know that they're buying these or is this something the algorithm's doing on its own? <laughs> At point, known as Google is, uh, yeah, um, I, it's interesting. Part of it is probably that, you know, thank God for science fiction, right? Because all these really wealthy people who run these companies uh, are all sci-fi fans. And apparently they've all, if you've got a billion dollars and you're under 35, you know, apparently these people have decided to make every science fiction dream come true um, with their wealth. And so that's fine with me, I guess. So how much of robotics is driven by science fiction? Well, I mean, I think science fiction plays a, a huge role for sure. First of all, I mean, everybody in every scientist really, I think you're going to find the vast majority of scientists enjoy science fiction, right? And, and at some point may have been inspired by science fiction in order to study science in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do, even if they're not science fiction fans, you do have to do an immense amount of delay of gratification. If you're a scientist, you have to wait for years and years before you get any kind of payoff on your work. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you really have to be the sort of person who can fantasize about what, what the outcome is going to be, you know, and really dream big about what you're doing and, and what, you know, what kind of cool stuff is going to shake out of this whenever you're finished. Um, you know, otherwise who's just, who's got the patience to sit there in the slave galley, you know, tugging on the oar for four years or whatever <laughs> until you end up with a degree or a paper published. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the other thing science fiction does is it, it really gives the public and scientists a common language, you know? So if you go and read articles about science, like, breakthroughs, you'll often see the author of the, of the, uh, of the paper or whatever or of the article will say, you know, this is like... Harry Potter's invisibility cloak, or this is like a phaser or a tricorder or, or something like that. And they sort of invoke these science fiction memes in order to get everybody on the same page. And so without that common language, you know, you can imagine it might be kind of hard actually for the public to really engage and, and really be able to sort of see the value in what scientists are even doing, you know? Yes. Um, it's a kind of point of reference. And, and also, you know, we use it to, to terrify people as well sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Which maybe doesn't help the scientists that much. Um, sorry, scientists. 
Well, I think, you know, the whole re- bring back the dinosaurs thing has been completely screwed by Michael Crichton's work. So, Did you see, by the way, you, you mentioned pleasure and, and, and fear earlier. I think they're making a TV show out of Westworld, um, another Michael Oh, Crichton. I heard that. I love Westworld. Uh, I don't know That's- how they would stretch it out into a TV series, but yeah. What? Yeah, I know, because it is like... It's sort of, again, it's like an amusement park gone wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly what... Oh, it, it is exactly. It's totally <laughs> just Jurassic Park with robots. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Just, I should... Oh, well. He should, well, he, you know, he, he, he wrote the book, I believe, or it may have been straight to screenplay. I had to go back and look. You know, now that I think about it, I think he took it straight to screenplay. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, it, it is a fun movie. I think, it was, I think I saw it on Netflix uh, late last year. Yeah, so the question is, I wonder how you do spin that out, because um, it is a catastrophe. So how do you – and it's like, just leave the theme park. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just uh, just different people. It's like Fantasy Island, only people die every week. I don't <laughs> – I'm not sure. That That is a strange question. But uh, And besides, without the uh, key robot uh, of Yul Brenner. Yeah. I, I don't know how they'll. I mean, wow, he was so good in that. I've always wanted to be that for Halloween, you know. Yul Brenner, yeah, <laughs> a cowboy, a cowboy robot in black. I, I mean, a cowboy in black missing half his face, missing the face, the face panel being off. That would be a great. That would <laughs> be a great uh, costume. Like Halloween's coming up. <laughs> I, I'm too fat. I would look like some kind of vending machine was out for a stroll. So. <laughs> So the line between technology and reality is uh, is becoming blurred in some ways. So we have these human cyborg type people like Steve Mann. Are the transhumanists and singularitarians? Is that a real word? Are, are they are are they are they real? Or do you think we're the singularities coming and and robots and cyborgs are going to be the the wave of the future? I don't know. You know, so I wrote a, a novel called Amped. You know, that really kind of deals with this about like a near future in which people are able to get implants that are, you know, and it causes kind of like social strife. And when I think about this kind of stuff from a very realistic, you know, viewpoint, like, like for real, real, how do I think this would span out? Um, you know, that kind of stuff, it goes under your skin, right? And that's like a big deal. You know, you get a hole drilled in your freaking head, you know, <laughs> you get an implant put in there or, or you're missing an arm and you get a robot arm. I mean, you're not going to just cut your arm off, Right. And the person who's missing an arm, if you ask them, would you rather have a human arm or this really fancy new robot arm, they'll go for the human arm every time, right? It's only when a human arm's not available that they go for this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And so, like, what that means to me is the development of this stuff and the proliferation of all of these robotics technologies that sort of augment human abilities, turn us into cyborgs and, and, you know, and, and all that is driven by need, like severe medical need. Um, I'll get a brain implant if I have seizures all the time because that will improve my quality of life. But I'm not going to get a brain implant so that I can like read the internet with my eyes closed or something. Um, and a lot of the people I see who are transhumanists, 
are not the same people. There are people who are looking at a dream of the future and thinking about that. The people who are really doing it are people who have a real world need. They're the people who got into a motorcycle accident and got their leg cut off. You know, they're not like the guy who's like, oh, I've got a, I've got a, you know, a magnet in my finger and I can like pay for my coffee. It's like, Danger, Will Robinson. You like, <laughs> you're not a cyborg. You're yeah. a credit card. What the- <laughs> There's a difference between transhumanists who are looking into, I'd say, the more distant future. And the real pioneers of transhumanism who are people who have serious medical needs and are blazing a path into the future, not because they want to, but because they almost have to, because it's their only solution to a major problem that they have right now. And, you know, and I think if you want to look at how transhumanism is going to happen, you need to look at people who have real serious disabilities and the, tech, and the other people who are building technology that's going to help them. Those are the first cyborgs. Um, yeah, not not the person with the magnet in their finger or whatever. Although that's great to be, I think, thinking about the future. It's just I don't think that's how the future is going to appear. I wanted to ask if you know much about Steve Mann. I saw him at a Singularity Summit a couple of years ago, and he's got that headset and he takes uh, pictures with his eye, and you can actually log on somewhere online and see what he's seeing. Right. Um, he's can you tell guy, us about him? He's the guy who. Uh, some security guard ripped the thing out of his face, right? Out of McDonald's. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. In yeah. Paris. <laughs> okay. As you yeah. do. Yeah. I mean, so there's somebody, you got to respect that. He like put, these are people who've put their bodies on the line, right? <laughs> in order to go into the future. Uh, so, you know, I don't know a lot about Steve Mann in particular, but uh, it is interesting that people, there are a subset of people who are willing to have, their bodies seriously modified, not because they have a serious deficit, but because they're reaching for some kind of serious augmentation. And that's kind of interesting. But I think, you know, and they, they tend to be outliers, those people, right? But if you're going to look at the vast majority of people who are going to be adopting this technology, like by the hundreds or the thousands, um, or in the case of cochlear implants, you know, by the hundreds of thousands, uh, then you're going to be looking at people with serious medical uh, issues. Yeah, I find it fascinating too how the brain can adapt to these changes. Like it, it, it somewhere yeah. inside your brain is a physical, well, not physical, but there's a, a, a mental model of your body, and that these these new pieces can just become a part of that model. Yeah, and in, and in fact, this is this brings up sort of dramatic ramifications, right? So if uh, your your brain is always plastic, but it's more plastic when you're young. And so if you, uh, for instance, go without hearing a sound until you're 20, and then you get a cochlear implant that's suddenly delivering stimulus to your auditory nerve, and your brain has never formed any pathways because it's never had any stimulus from there before, um, then that's one thing. If you get the neural, if you get the cochlear implant when you're two months old, your brain has an extra 20 years to build the pathways and you actually have a much easier time of it when you're 20, right? So parents are highly motivated to have these surgeries done on their children whenever they're very young so that they'll be able to to develop, you know, normally, right? And I mean, isn't that just totally frightening, right? To have to make that decision for somebody else and when they're that little, you know, about... Uh, whether to get a cochlear implant and have any possibility of natural hearing sort of destroyed uh, with the, you know, with the introduction of this new technology, it's 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 got to be a super tough decision for for families to make and just uh, a really hard situation. Just in general, what's the current state of robotics for home and practical use right now? What we've seen in the past and what we're still seeing now are really specific applications. Right, you don't have a whole lot of general purpose robots that are just doing anything. You know, we've got millions of industrial robots that are doing specific tasks in factories, you know, building all of our little tools. We've got speech recognition and other kind of very specific applications that are in our phones and and around, you know, um, our environments. But we don't have like that general purpose robot yet that's just in our house folding clothes and then, you know, doing chores and stuff like that. And, And, you know, I think though that if you look at how the development going on with Google and with these large companies that we're, you know, we're starting 
the steps are being taken for that kind of stuff to start happening. Although roboticists have been promising that for like 60 years. So <laughs> take that with a yeah, grain yeah. of salt. But I, I think we're going to have, you know, real multipurpose robots showing up um, sometime in the next 10 years, 10 or 15. That just reminds me of the singularity. They keep saying it's going to be in five <laughs> years or 10 years. <laughs> I'm not a big believer in the singularity occurring. Oh, uh, nor, nor are we. We're pretty skeptical about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I haven't figured out a way to do a monster talk episode about it, but I definitely want to cover it in more detail. But as a computer IT person, I see it extremely unlikely. At exactly, least with the, right? Yeah, it's just <laughs> there's way too many complexities. There's too much we don't know about the brain. There's a lot of things going on. Oh, um, yeah. I, it was well, the whole thing, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's the whole idea, like it, Kurzweil has this idea that if because of the capacity for calculations, like the, 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 yeah. the that there's going to be this sort of emergent property of artificial intelligence that's going to come out of that. And I think, wait a minute, look at how much we have stored information already. Uh, you know, do libraries become sentient after a while? I don't think exactly. so. I don't think <laughs> about a steering wheel, right? I don't see that leap that he makes. The idea that just because – I mean it's true that it's easier to solve a problem if you can just solve it by brute force and then you don't have to have any sort of elegant solution that's based on you know, your, your, your processing constraints that you have. But that's even uglier, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> right, right, right. Problems. That's not how intelligence emerges. It's not, we're not solving like all of our sensory and interaction uh, problems, all the stuff that our brain's doing. It's doing it very efficiently. It's not brute force uh, solutions because we have like such a huge, uh, you know, processing power in our brains. I don't think that's how intelligent em- intelligence emerges. But anyway, we could debate. Wow. Right. But look how many iterations life had before it came up with our brains. Uh, We're not even close, right? (laughs) Unless, you know, unless we could have a scalable uh, natural selection process that let the code itself somehow advance itself, judge whether it was advancing or not and make choices. But I don't think that would be, first of all, a good idea and be uh, plausible. So, (laughs) well, I mean, so I think that, you know, you could speed up evolution. There There are evolutionary programming techniques, you know, to get answers. I mean, genetic algorithms being one, which is really fun. Uh, but, you know, I think it's possible that a singularity could happen. I just don't think it's going to be spontaneous. See, I mean, I think yeah. if a large enough group of people work on it for long enough and bust their asses. Oh, well, then that's different <laughs> though. Yeah, yeah. And then iteratively, I feel like it's a goal we could reach, you know, if everybody worked together. And so, but this pro- the problem with this is it ruins a couple of science fiction like memes, you know. One, it's not spontaneous, so there's no surprise, you know. Two, it requires a huge research effort, so it's not a secret, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that this has happened, uh, and there are papers, you know, written on all the half lobotomized predecessors. <laughs> right. Well, and then every time there's an upgrade, you know, half of us lose our skills because they're not compatible with the new AI. <laughs> I used oh, yeah. to speak Spanish, but now I have to wait for a patch, right? <laughs> oh, you mean, you mean uploading, the, yeah, like... Uh, like the next version languages. of consciousness, like consciousness 3.0. It's, it's <laughs> no got function. a different interface. And I don't want pop-up ads all the time in my brain, which are inevitable if, if they're... Uh, no, it wouldn't be a pop-up ad, man. It would just be a straight-up compulsion. You'd be like, I will going- buy this. <laughs> I'm going to bed me right now, and I'm ordering one of everything. Yeah, <laughs> Those those ants that get their brains controlled. Oh by, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which we covered previously on Monster Talk. Yeah, really parasitic. Uh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I think I found with uh, the Singularity Summit, there are a lot of people who were speaking there. They didn't necessarily seem to be transhumanists, but I think that they were just interested in technology in general. And I think there's some degree of fantasy there with uh, a lot of the attendees. Yeah, I, I think that's great. You know, I love that. I love that there are outliers who are willing to, you know, modify their bodies and everything. It wouldn't be like hum- proper humanity if, if there wasn't somebody willing to do that, you know? You need like that whole spectrum of, of people dreaming. It's, um, you know what it is, in, in, in machine learning terms or in just statistical terms, it's, it's like breaking out of a local maxima, right? You need somebody that's out there on the fringes to sort of discover that low probability but awesome solution, you know? <laughs> yeah, very innovative. 
that if we didn't have crazy people, we would never find those answers. Better them than us. (laughs) I I certainly don't mind people looking. You know, it's the same thing with Bigfoot. I I don't think there's a Bigfoot, but I, Mm -hmm. if you want to go in the woods and look, you know, have at it. That's great. Yeah, I concur. Yeah. So So speaking of robots, I think we're supposed to be talking about robots, military robots, military use. It doesn't seem like there's a huge, um, gap between a uh, a predator drone driven by young people uh, with training and a predator drone driven by basic rules of AI. Uh, so how far are we away from kill bots? There's a huge, there's a, there is a huge difference by the way, between a fully autonomous predator drone and like a semi autonomous drone and then a drone with no, with no autonomy at all. That's just controlled by a person. I mean, I think that's those, those three differences are huge. Um, but in terms of, you know, how close are we to killbots, we've had killbots for a really long time. I mean, I don't know why nobody knows this. I mean, first of all, a landmine is essentially a robot. I mean, it, it lays there and waits on a stimulus, which is somebody stepping on it. Or in the case of like, I think there's like a, the kind that trigger on vehicles, can they can detect like changes in... Anyway, I'm not an expert on mines, but they sit there and they wait, and whenever the stimulus arrives, they trigger, you know? And then there's, like, more complex mines that um, that hunt submarines, and they're actually capable of tracking down a submarine and following it. They're, like, basically torpedoes that are waiting on a submarine. Those have been around for a long time. Um, there's the uh, Phalanx close-in weapons system, which is on most Navy ships. Um, they're awesome. They're amazing. I, I was they, I was in the navy and uh, you got to hear those being test fired. It is insane. I've only watched a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> they, they all look like R two D two. That must have been insane to be near one of those. They're very. I feel like they're very hostile to humans. Like um, it sounds like someone has taken a uh, uh, a really high end. Uh, what do you call them? Those pneumatic uh, drills, you know, and just is running against the. You know, just as loud as you could possibly imagine. Well, they're Gatling guns, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. But so, so they're insanely fast. I mean, they, they, the, the, the amount of ammo they throw out is crazy. And it's from what I understand, it's like depleted uranium rounds. So yeah. it's super dense. Uh, it it so just completely shoot, shreds whatever it hits. They're trying to shoot uh, really fast-moving aircraft or missiles, right? And, so, and, the, and the, the, that's the point of, the, of, the, of that system that weapon system exists to respond to threats that are moving faster than human reaction times, right? So they can identify a threat, target the threat, destroy the, you know, destroy the threat, determine that the threat's been destroyed and then stop firing before a human being has an opportunity to like react. And so they, they're, they're basically fully autonomous and they've been around forever. It's like a fully autonomous auto gun or something, you know, and they're on, I mean, I think they're on like most warships, like as just a part of a standard package. And, and so, you know, we've had these robots out there and, 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 you know, we've had them operating for, for a long time. Um, and so I think there is experience on how to deal with that. I mean, one way to do it is like, like with, in, the, in the DMZ between North and South Korea, there are auto guns. The idea is anybody who goes into that area is as good as dead. Right. <laughs> it's not a complex ethical decision. They've decided that that's a no man's land. Right. And, you know, that's one way to constrain the ethical problem of, of employing a military robot is to just say, we told you not to step over there. <laughs> like, uh, you can't go there or you'll get killed. Um, wow. You know, so. So, I mean, there's that. I think that's sort of a simplistic you know, end of things like that's like the landmine end of things, which isn't to say landmines are ever ethical, but, and I think they are like outlawed, right. Um, by Geneva conventions. I, I believe that's true, but I also believe that they are all over the place. Yeah. They're still yeah. not. So, um, Former Yugoslavia. <laughs> so a lot of people argue that robots in the military, uh, have the capability to be, to make more, ethical decisions than human soldiers. And part of that reason is that they don't have to worry about losing their own lives. And they are also not affected by emotion. So uh, if they've, you know, if they're in a situation where they're scared, they're not going to be scared. They're not going to be angry. They're not going to 
seek revenge. You know, they're, you know, they're not going to run away. So like, you know, you have this situation where you could build a robot and say, look, you're only allowed to fire at other robots. And if you get into, if you get involved with human beings, then you just allow yourself to be destroyed. And that's not an option with human beings, you know? So I think there's a lot of capacity for, for building highly ethical military robots. Um, there's a guy named Pete Singer who's got a great book called Wired for War. And he brings up the biggest issue, I think, which is when you can employ these highly ethical military robots to fight your wars, what's to stop you from just applying them all the time at the drop of a dime, you know, for anything and just engaging in unethical wars in the first place? Um, even if the combatants are ethical. <laughs> I have to admit I'm one of those people that didn't really perceive the landmine as necessarily being a robot. Uh, and when you were talking about cochlear implants earlier, I didn't really think of those in terms of being robots. So uh, I wonder if that goes back to the idea of us seeing robots as something being human-like and similar to us and, and these other machines, we uh, don't necessarily think of them as being robots. Yeah, you know, I think people... I think people don't, right? There's some sort of weird threshold that's a very human thing. And then it's like suddenly if it moves like a person or if it, or if it starts doing some kind of task or activity that we've always associated with, with only people, you know, mm-hmm. like speaking <laughs> or understanding yeah. language, um, then suddenly it's a robot, you know? And then yeah. it's, it's like, oh, this came out of the blue. And the answer, you know, it didn't really come out of the blue. Um, it's just crossed that, that threshold of visibility, um, and if you look at all the previous incarnations, you know, those have all been robots too, but they're just not human-like enough for people to take notice. In, in yeah. nerd terms, we, we say androids if it's a humanoid, right? Uh, no, you say humanoid if it's a humanoid. You say android if it's uh, trying to look like a person, like if it has skin and, and a face and stuff like that. But there are lot- R2-D2, C-3PO. C-3PO is a droid? C-3PO is a humanoid robot. Okay. Um, <laughs> And, and R2-D2 is what they commonly call a trash can robot. Yeah, I would see that, yeah. so <laughs> um, Which is like a sort of a, yeah, cylindrical um, kind of a trash can on wheels. Um, Dalek. Lots of platforms that are like that. Oh, well, then, and then uh, the, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica? Those are androids. Those are androids, okay. Yeah, they look and act just like people, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Or like some yeah. people, I guess. Right. So, <laughs> crazy <laughs> people. possible to tell the difference. I never bought that. Yeah. No, no. I, I can barely tell the difference between never mind, I'm not getting into that. And it's but, kind of a <laughs> test too, right? If you can't tell the difference between them, then aren't they just people now? I mean and I think that's kinda of how it ended up. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it, it, yeah. <laughs> What's the difference? Well, that's the whole thing about like if, if you, you know, treat people ethically if they have consciousness, then all of a sudden is it ethical to turn off your computer at the end of the night if it, it, it has AI in there? You know, is is that really fair? I, I don't know. But <laughs> But on, yeah. on a more serious question, <laughs> why does everybody think that if robots become intelligent, they want to kill us? Yeah, I know. Uh, I think it's because of people like me and the long and hallowed <laughs> tradition that I'm following in of uh, of telling that story, right? Um, it's it's just projection, right? It's like we're projecting how we would feel onto the machines. Um, is there some – maybe you can tell me – is there some story where there's a uh, well, never mind. Uh, so I wrote a middle reader called uh, Try it, try it. I, I'm curious. <laughs> if anyone will know, it will be Blake. <laughs> I realized that I whatever this was, I think I I ripped it off in in a book I wrote. So I'm just gonna mention the book I wrote. <laughs> it's a it's a middle reader called uh, A Boy and His Bot, and there's a there's a story in it where there's a robot who's designed to paint happy faces on things, and that's it. That's what the robot's designed to do. That's what it wants to do. It's what it's good at, and that's all it does. But the robot goes rogue, and like everything goes wrong, and all the safety constraints break down. The robot self-replicates, and it ends up painting happy faces like on every asteroid and every planet and every human, and it destroys the world, right? Painting uh, happy faces on everybody's corpse, and and like, <laughs> and, and and that that is like the outcome that I see as more realistic, you know. The, it's a funny outcome because of the happy face thing, but it's like whatever the robot is designed to do, it can want to do it too much, and then you have a catastrophe. But it's not going to necessarily go, want to do what human beings want to do, you know. 
um, like not do any work or, or whatever it is, what, you know, that we think we want to do. Um, you know, it's much more likely to be a situation where it's like a piece of machinery getting out of control and then doing whatever it was designed to do too much. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me, um, there was a short story I read years ago when I was a kid and, and in the story, scientists built this really powerful computer and, um, they wanted to ask it this really important question. And the question they said was, is there a God? And the computer thinks for a minute. And then the computer says, there is now. That's a, yeah. <laughs> Which is a great, you know, it's a great story because it's like a chilling ending and everything. I was like, but wait a minute. It doesn't have arms. I mean, what's it going to do? Think them to death? I don't, you know. <laughs> so like, yeah. It, it, it's not as scary as an adult as it was when I was a kid. It was terrifying. What? <laughs> it's a challenge to write those types of characters. You know, it's like. Hannibal Lecter, right? He's uh, he's in jail, but he's really, really smart. So, like, how is he going to use just his intellect to fuck everybody over? You know, and it's like that's that's writing the singularity, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's why a lot of those films fail because it's just not inherently a visual phenomenon. You know, how nine thousand obviously being a great exception. Uh, um, he had arms. <laughs> well, he had a whole spaceship, right? He was the spaceship, and so he was embodied in a really clear and constrained and easy-to-understand kind of way with high stakes because the ship was very far away and they were dependent on it. But, like, you know, a ro- like an AI that's, like, swapping the streetlights so that cars wreck, eh. Right, right. <laughs> like not that, like, terrified, you know? Maybe for a subplot. I didn't see Transcendence, you know? Uh, with Johnny Depp, but it, it didn't do well. And, I, and I'm, again, I wonder, were they able to sort of visually depict this guy whose brain had gone into a, a machine, you know? And I, my, I suspect they weren't able to visually. Oh, I saw it. It was, <laughs> it had some good visuals, it had some very good visuals. Did it? Okay. Yeah. And okay. It, it was a little, it was unclear what the, uh, what his motivations were. Okay. Um, it, it's one of those things where I've like read too many stories uh, and I read too many brain books and all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know, if you have an AI, what is the reasoning behind its continued empathy and emotions? Because those are constructs based on our biological systems, not based on any kind of algorithm. It's not, it's, so it's like, why would, why would it continue to love its wife? Why would it continue to care about humanity? Actually, I mean, that, to- so, you know, I wrote a sequel to Robopocalypse called Robogenesis and, uh, it came out earlier this summer, and I really get into it, uh, into what you're talking about right now in that novel, because I'm, I was really fascinated to consider, like, what kinds of different behaviors do you get out of different types of singularities that occur on different sort of platforms? Like, so let's say you make a super intelligent AI that is based on the exact replica of a brain of a human being. So it has bits and bytes that are, you know, replacing chemical interactions in a person's brain. But as a result, it has memories. It remembers being human. It knows what emotions feel like, you know, versus if you make a super intelligent AI that's based off of just like pure data, you know, like internet chat transcripts and just like, you know, math. It doesn't have memories of being human. It doesn't. And, and my feeling is that that entity would not empathize with human beings in the same way. It wouldn't necessarily understand what pain feels like or what love feels like, you know. And it's really fun to play with, you know. Like a reverse uh, Skinner box, right? It would try to figure out what we were going to be motivated by, right? So I'll have to check out your book. <laughs> Sorry, Karen. Yeah, that sounds great. But. I guess, Daniel, you're the the person to ask, how can we survive a robot apocalypse? (laughs) Um, You know, just like from a really realistic perspective, I think we're in the middle of one. You know, I think technological upheaval is occurring at a faster and faster rate. And, uh, you know, I think that humankind's main ability, you know, the thing that defines us, is how adaptable we are. And the, as we get older, it gets a little harder to adapt to all the new technology. It gets harder to care, you know, mm-hmm. and you just get angry at all the new words that they've come up with <laughs> that, are, that are now <laughs> verbs and nouns. Um, 
Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, the, you know, the way to survive this technological upheaval is to just do your best to keep an open mind, man. And like, be willing to engage with, with the next round of technology, no matter how stupid or pointless it seems. <laughs> keep up with things. <laughs> Keep up with things. It's, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. I mean, it's, there's just a certain amount of uh, just like weariness, you know, <laughs> that you accumulate uh, year after year while you just, it's always something new and you're just thinking, I just, I don't want to figure this out. I don't care. Uh, but, you know, the world is changing faster than human beings and it's up to us to sort of keep up, right? Yeah, good advice. Yeah, but it annoys me how many times that the changes are based on marketing and not on good engineering. Or <clears> some twenty-year-old's <laughs> dorm room inspiration. Yeah. yeah. So then, okay. <laughs> well, I just like I keep thinking about it's always Microsoft Word with me. So like like up till two thousand three, I knew exactly how to use Microsoft Word, and then they implemented <laughs> the ribbon. And now for 11 years, I haven't known what the hell's going on, right? (laughs) (laughs) What I'm telling you is bite the bullet and, like, figure it out. I do. I have. I've carried on. I'm not stuck in 2003. I've moved on. I just hate every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's part of it. (laughs) All right. So I have a follow-up question to Karen's, which is, how can we better serve our robot masters? (laughs) <laughs> I think I actually answered that, didn't I? I guess you did. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. <laughs> go with yeah. their punches, you know. Go do with- what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Complain about it, but do it. <laughs> We've got a final question, though. This is one that we like to ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite monster? Yeah, that's actually a really easy one for me to answer. Um, always, from the beginning, my favorite monster has always, always been the werewolf. And... I actually kind of touched on the reason why earlier. Um, in my mind, the werewolf is so scary because it combines that sort of the agency of a human being making a decision to be evil and bite your face off. Because in the werewolf's face, you can see traces of humanity, right? And then it's also got that basic underlying instinctual primate fear of being torn apart by a carnivorous jaws, right? Like it is also a wolf, you know, it is also just a predator. And so when you combine like that animalistic predator with the human ability to be evil and just like mean you ill will, then to me, that's like the perfect scary creature. And it just, it's grotesque and it just terrifies the shit out of me. It always has. Dog Soldiers probably being one of my favorites. Oh, great movie. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're in Blake's good books now. That's one of his favorites <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> well, it just, it's funny to me because I, I think recently I've a, a, adapted my definition of what makes a monster to be anything that can turn me into prey. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but that can be an animal though, you know. Absolutely it could be an animal. Uh, uh, you, you think like, – we did an episode on, on the Beast of Gévaudan. Uh, I have to say it like that. Uh, but that yeah, was, very nice. <laughs> uh, and it was really, uh, you know, spoilers, but you should go check out the episode if you haven't heard it. Uh, it, it. It was wolves. It was naturally occurring wolves. But there's something horrifying about being a person and thinking you're in charge and then suddenly finding that, you know, you're you're just meat. You know, yeah, like the gray. The gray. Great example. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I think of the, that as man versus nature. With the with the animals being an incarnation of nature, you know, like a snowstorm will freeze you to death, but it ain't personal. You know, a wolf <laughs> rip your face off. Nothing personal, buddy. I'm a wolf. Well, it's absolutely not personal in real life, but the legends that built up around it were all about it being supernatural because, you know, we, we, we yeah. accrue stories. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, this has been fascinating. Um, yeah. One more thing. This is a little different, but I've been trying to start adding these kind of things to the show notes. Uh, any recommended, obviously, your books, we'll put links to that in there, but um, any, any films or things from pop culture perspective you think people should have as part of their basic robot training? You know, I would, I'll just throw out a, a, what I think is a great short story. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, the Nine Billion Names of God. Is that, that Asimov? Um, no. Is it? Wait. I've heard that. I've, I've probably read it. I'm thinking of the 99 names uh, of it's, God. <laughs> it, it's Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur um, C. Clarke. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, I will cut out the part where I was wrong. That's Arthur C. Yeah. Clarke, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> mentioned earlier that short story about um, you know now you know is there a god now there is um, and this is a this is a short story that's in the same vein and it's got a great twist and it's just a wonderful short story. In uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" There's all kinds of interesting consciousness questions about uh, you know being real or being a copy and, and what are the implications. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you, guys. It was my pleasure. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard me and Dr. Karen Stolzno interview author and roboticist Daniel H. Wilson on the topic of robots as monsters. Links to Daniel's excellent novel, Robopocalypse, and many other things that we talked about in the show are in our show notes at monstertalk.org. This is a good time to mention a new project I'm working on. I've joined the blogging team at Skeptic Magazine. They have a new regular blog section at skeptic.com forward slash insight. Or you can just go to monstertalk.org and click on the blog link at the top of the page. I don't know what the rest of the folks will be writing about, but I'm planning to use this as a forum for some of the research I've been working on for the past couple of years. Sometimes it'll be on monsters or aliens, but a lot of it will be on science, technology, and the process of invention. I think you'll enjoy it. My first post is all about who invented pasteurization. Check it out and let me know what you think. You can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Atlantis, D-O-C-T-O-R-A-T-L-A-N-T-I-S, or email me at Blake at MonsterTalk.org, B-L-A-K-E at MonsterTalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but the opinions here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We've actually got more transcripts in the hopper that will be coming online soon, so thanks to the folks who've donated to that project, D.R. Crane and Scott Barber especially. Well, it's almost Halloween, and I'm working on a very unusual take on some very traditional monsters that I hope you'll enjoy. And I may even be able to squeeze out two more episodes this month if the recordings work out. We'll see. I'm hopeful. Thanks again for listening to Monster Talk. I really appreciate the iTunes reviews and folks sharing the episodes with their friends. And we've also made it into the AV Club's top podcast list twice now. Hopefully, all you Monster Talkers out there are helping shine the light of reason into the dark and scary closets of the monster world. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Don't forget to turn off your robots before you go to bed. You can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally. Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Okay, so this is pre-recorded. Uh, I mean, obviously, it will be pre-recorded after we record it. So now it's not pre-recorded, but it will be. And so <laughs> if we... That was going to save us all a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great. And so thanks for participating. Talk to you later. <laughs> hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.